I don't have a demon from Covenant Seminary. <laughs> I have a doctorate of ministry. <laughs> no. um, it's, it's good to be here today. Um, I, I, I want to kind of orient you before I orient you. And um, I, I was a professor at one time, and so I, I just like to ask questions. Does, does anybody here know what season we are in? Midwest, Midwest season? Yeah. <laughs> Close, but <laughs> anybody know what church season we are in? That, that help? Advent, good, good. Um, some of our churches don't recognize the, the, the church calendar. Uh, there's reasons for that, and some do. And so um, Advent, let, let me put it this way, Christmas, which the season of Christmas hasn't started yet. Christmas starts on Christmas, and Christmas is the celebration of the Incarnation, and that's a big thing. It's the celebration of the incarnation. There are really three doctrines that, upon which Christianity is based. Incarnation, substitutionary atonement, and resurrection, justification. And, and uh, Christmas is reserved to celebrate the incarnation. God became flesh. Now, Advent is the season we're in. Advent is the season where we prepare to celebrate the Incarnation. We go through Advent talking about the Incarnation, thinking about it, um, you know, uh, studying it so that we can celebrate it. So we are four, four Sundays for Advent. We are in the second Sunday for Advent. And that is why uh, I'm going to preach to you on the Incarnation. Now, our scripture reading for the sermon is 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And before I read this to you, uh, I want to now orient you uh, to the times and occasions in which John wrote this little letter. John wrote a gospel and he wrote three letters. And uh, and he's writing them to a, a group of churches that John kind of heads up, you see. And uh, so in the first century, John is writing to these churches because these churches were, were going through struggles, big struggles. And uh, so I kind of want to orient us to those struggles. And I want to do it this way. Uh, to do this, I, want, I am going to read Jesus' answer to a question that he was asked about what are, the, what are the signs of your coming in the end of the age. Okay, And Jesus is going to answer that question. And I am going to, let's do a little checklist kind of thing. I'm going to say, Jesus, answer it. Here's the sign. Here's your sign. I'm going to say, well, in John's church, could he check that and say, yeah, that sign has happened or is happening? And then I'm going to ask you, is it happening now? Okay? So you get this. So 
when Jesus was asked, what is the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus said, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Now, John's church. John, is that, is that sign coming to pass? Is that a reality to you? Are you being handed over, persecuted because of Christ? John would say, check. And not only that, we have the benefit of hindsight. We know it was bad when John was writing this letter for those people. It was only going to get worse. A lot worse. Check. Now let me ask you. Can we check that? Now, and, and I'm talking about us here. In certain parts of the world, I could easily check it. But us here, I don't know. But it does seem to be getting worse, doesn't it? Number two, at, any, at that time, Jesus said, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. John, absolutely. Check. Read the letter. He even talks about it. For us? Well, I think, yeah. Check. Let's check that one off. Many people turn away from the faith, betray each other, and there are many false prophets. Number three. Because of the increase of lawlessness, by the way, that's oftentimes translated as wickedness. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But, Jesus said, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. How about that one? John's day, increase of wickedness, John? Oh, absolutely. Check. How about us? Is there an increase of wickedness out there? I think so. Check. Not too long ago, go through this check mark thing, I would say, well, John's world is very different than ours. I think ours is becoming a lot more like John. Now, notice Jesus did say at the end, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. That's important. Now, the things that I just uh, related to you that we put the check mark down, what are those things? Well, I'll tell you exactly what they are. They are the works of the devil. The devil points to those things and says, I did that. Those are my works. So what I am saying is that the times and occasion for John writing this little letter that I'm going to read to, a part I'm going to read to you, is that things were tough. Things were tough in the early church. Things were tough in John's churches. And they were only going to get a lot worse. And I think the same trend in our times and occasion is similar. And I think they're only going to get a lot worse. So, let me ask you a question. I am, go I am about to read to you where John is going to say, and I think it is the highlight of his entire letter, he's going to say that the purpose for which Christ came was to destroy the works of the devil. That's the gospel right there. And that is, that is the center thing of the letter. 
The purpose for which Christ came was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, what is puzzling is that if Christ destroyed the works of the devil, wouldn't we expect things to get better? Think about it. Don't you think if Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, the people sitting in John's pews would say, hmm, then why aren't things getting better? If these things on the checklist are works of the devil and Christ destroyed them, shouldn't we see the opposite? Shouldn't things be getting better as the years go by? But Jesus said, uh, but the one, who, the one who came to destroy the works of the devil is the one who tells us that things are going to get really, really bad before he comes at the end of the age. And Jesus then says, but you, if you stand firm to the end, you will be saved. Now, what I make of that is that John is, uh, what John is writing about is that there is a redemptive purpose for the works of the devil. There is a redemptive purpose for the works of the devil. And that is what John is writing about in his letter. That is what John wants the people to hear. Now, hear what John says. Hear the word of the Lord. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we shall be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus, purifies, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. But you know... Yet he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has, has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning." The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice his righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Amen. Now, I want to tell you a story. The, the story is the big story of redemption. It, it, it's, it's in your Bible. It's the gospel itself. It begins on page one of your Bible, and it ends on the last amen at the end. It tells the great story of redemption. Now, when Jesus was about... And, um, and, and uh, by the way, that story tells how the Son of God appeared to destroy the works 
of the devil. When Jesus was about uh, in, in this world, in his ministry, he would talk about himself in the third person. Now, I don't know how old you are, but you remember Bob Dole? Bob Dole would talk about Bob Dole in the third person. Nobody talks about Bob Dole more than Bob Dole, which you see how that works. I didn't know if you know that. It just drove me nuts. Well, Jesus kind of does the same thing. He talks about himself in the third person, but he says it like this, the son of man. The son of man. He's, he's talking about himself there. You see, and when he uses the title Son of Man, he refers to the purpose for which he came into the world. The Son of Man, he said, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. The Son of Man himself. What Jesus is doing is identifying himself in that great story of redemption. What he's doing is he says, see that story of redemption, the scripture? That's me. That's me right there, the son of man. You see, in Genesis 3.15, what you just heard read, after sin entered into the world and cursing the serpent, which we know is the devil, and this is his works, God said, I will put enmity, that means warfare, between you, the devil, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring, that's plural, and her offspring, that's plural, that's us. And then it's, it, it does something funny, and it says, he and he, a particular descendant, singular. Now it's pointing to he, an offspring, a human being, a son of man, because that's what son of man means, human being. He will crush your head, and you shall crush his heel. Jesus is saying, that's me. That's me. This particular descendant is a human being. And when you think about this human being, you need to picture in your head because you're going to have to picture something. And it's going to be a warrior. It's going to be a warrior. The, the champion. Remember the story about uh, David and Goliath? The Israelites, the army of the Israelites were squared up against the army of the Philistines. And the Philistines put up their champion. The meanest, baddest Philistine there is. Samson. Not, uh, Goliath, excuse me, if I've been saying that wrong. Goliath, the giant. That's the warrior, that's the champion. And, and nobody of the Israelites wanted to do it. And so wimpy David, the boy, does it. He's, he can't even wear the armor. See, that's the idea. God is putting forth a champion. He... The Son of Man will destroy the works of the devil. So John says it right out. The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So, so to say the Son of God appeared is a kind of a strange way of saying something. We might expect John to say, well, the Son of God came, or the Son of God rose up, or even the Son of God was born, and that's really what he's He's communicating there, which 
which by the way means what? The Son of God was incarnate, the incarnation. The Son of God became human, appeared. Because the word appear means to make known or manifest. To say, so saying the Son of God appeared is John's way of saying God became human, the Son of Man. And John uses this word appeared five times in this short little passage that I read to you. And this is the amazing thing, not only referring to the incarnation of Christ, God became flesh, God became a human, but also about us believers. And that's the part most people miss. So listen carefully. I want you to hear it. Listen for it. What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God. That's talking about you. Now we are sons of God, though it is not yet apparent, there's that word, appear, what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, what he is. The Son of God appeared, became flesh, a human, to destroy the works of the devil. So this is so important that it requires an explanation. Because you go, oh, I get it. And I say, well, maybe you do, but probably don't. It, it, it grows on you. It grew on me. You see, this is so important, it requires an explanation. The, the Eastern Church, that's the oldest part of the church. The church began in the East. And, and um, the, the, the big deal, the big question the Eastern Church, the early church had to deal with was issues of the incarnation. How, how can God become flesh? And the Eastern Church to this day places an emphasis on the incarnation. The Eastern Church loves John. You think you love John? Not as much as those guys in the East. The reason the Eastern Church loves John is because John places an emphasis on the incarnation. The Western Church, or what I like to call particularly us, Protestant types, we are the far Western Church. We place the emphasis on the death and resurrection of Christ. And that's in the Western church uh, loves Paul. Why? Because Paul talks about the death and resurrection, justification, and, and those doctrines. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that one is better than the other. Not at all. But I, I, I am saying that uh, it is a matter of emphasis. You put the emphasis on a different syllable, it sounds differently, doesn't it? That's what's going on. Now, there, are two, there were two early church theologians. Their name were Irenaeus and Athanasius. And these guys, these guys are orthodox, you see. And, and they influenced the Eastern churches' emphasis on the incarnation. Now, listen carefully. When asked, basically, when asked, Irenaeus was asked, hey, can you state the gospel in, son of a, you know, a, in a sentence or two? Um, 
Irenaeus says, well, sure, I'll give it a try. Now listen, Irenaeus said, God became what we are so we might become what he is. I'm going to say that again. God became what we are so we might become what he is. And Athanasius agreed because he basically said the same thing when he was asked. Does that sound familiar? It ought to because Irenaeus basically quoted this passage of John that I read to you. Now, my, my guess is that we are probably okay with the first part. The Son of Man, uh, the Son became what we are. We know that's the incarnation, right? God and the person of Jesus Christ became a human being. And, and that is what John meant when he said, the Son of God appeared. God and the person of Jesus Christ became a human being. To do what? To destroy the works of the devil. But it's that second part. You know, they just stop there. Right? It's the second part that you go, oh, really? Is that really true? It's the second part that makes us suspicious. So we might, and, and what is that second part? So that we might become what he is. What, what is he? Well, he's the son of God. Is that right? So we might become son of God? Well, that's exactly what John just told us. Now you are sons of God. And when he appears, we shall be what he is. So to make this easier, I'm going to make a distinction because because. This distinction, when I read it, and you know, somebody let me explain it to you. You got to make these distinctions, and I oh, now I see. Okay, um, I'm going to make a distinction between merely human, truly human, and less than human. So the story goes, the great story of redemption goes, that God made our first parents, Adam and Eve, human. Let's call that merely human. That's their created state. He made them human. And if you read the story as, as we did, we see that God subjected our first parents to trials and temptations. He put them in the garden. He said, now obey or disobey. And then there's a serpent, which is the devil, doing his works. What's that all about? Why would God do that? Well, the scripture tells us why. It's so that through testings, they and we might become truly human. See, that's the first distinction. That's the part of the story that we in the West don't really notice. The whole purpose of the serpent and the choice of obedience is that our first parents might, through testing, become truly human before God. That's the goal. That's the goal of all creation. But our first parents... Subject to this testing, they failed the test, they sinned, they, they, they became disobedient, 
and became what? Less than human. And we know all about that part because we say it this way. They fell from their created estate into a state of sin and misery. They became less than human. But as promised in Genesis 3.15, the Son of Man appeared. God became what we are, merely human, and through trials and temptations... And you can read about them in your Bible. Christ, this merely human being, became truly human. So that we, who are fallen and less than human, might become what he is. Truly human. So this is what John's talking about. So what are the works of the devil that the Son of God appeared because uh, appeared became merely human to destroy? In verse 8, John tells us that the one who commits sin is, is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. Now, there is something very important here. Uh, anytime you read 1 John, you got to know this. It doesn't come through in translations very well. When John talks about sinning here, he, doesn't use, he uses the present active indicative. That, that means to continue, habitually do it. So he's not just talking about anybody sins at all. He's talking about habitually sinning. The one who continues actively in sin is of the devil. Why? Because the devil has continued actively in sin from the beginning. But there's more. In verse 4, John tells us that whoever continues in sin in this way is lawless. This is John's way of saying rebellion against God. This person is in rebellion against God and God's authority over him or God's authority over us. And this one is less than human, is fallen. Then John tells us that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Then John tells us that everyone born of God does not continue actively in sin because God's nature abides in him and he cannot continue in sin because he is born of God. He has become truly human as Christ is truly human. So the works of the devil is not just sinning, it's lawlessness before God. It is rebellion against God's authority over us. It is the work of the devil that you should become less than human. When that happens, the devil points at you and says, I did that. That's my work. And that we should live out our less than human existence before God in sin and misery. And that is no way to live out your existence. That is not the goal of creation. And Jesus tells us that the devil accomplishes this work through deception. The devil lied to me. That's, that's what Eve said. I was deceived. The devil accomplishes his great work through deception. In other words, it's the big lie and he's got you when you believe the big lie. That, and the big lie is that we might find meaning and purpose in our lives by being our own Lord 
and master. And since God is just and must condemn the lawless, guess what? When Christ appears, he must, as a compulsion of his just nature, condemn the lawless. That's why God said, you sin, you die. God is just and must condemn the lawless. You see, that's the trap. That's the work of the devil to destroy you. And it's God that does the destroying. So how does the Son of God destroy the works of the devil? First, in his appearing, in his becoming flesh, a human being. This is to say that God became as we are. Christ was tested. Christ suffered trials and temptations, and through his act of obedience, he became truly human. The only human being to become truly human, the only one, Jesus Christ. And his obedience to the will of his Father was that he shall bear the condemnation of his people for their sins. You know, our obedience doesn't amount to that. The obedience of Christ becoming truly human, uh, becoming a human being and suffering and testing, was that he would bear the condemnation of us for our sins, and he would gift his grace, his righteousness to us for our justification. But that right there, all that right there, doesn't destroy the works of the devil. Now, don't get me wrong, all that must be. You have to have all that for the works of the devil to be destroyed, but what I'm saying is just that does not do it. It doesn't do it. The other, the other part that is needed is the new birth, and we call that regeneration. You see, if Christ died for my sins so that my sins are forgiven, then I may, what, I, I, you know, I, I don't have to worry about condemnation anymore, right? So this sounds really good to me. You see, I, I may continue to sin what I do best, and God may continue to forgive. That's something I think God does best. And, and so here we can. We can just remain forever. I continue to sin. God continues to forgive. So I can remain less than human, without condemnation. But notice I'm remaining less than human. This is exactly how most people believe the gospel works in this day and age. I will guarantee you that. This is a great arrangement. Jesus died on the cross for my sins, so I can just keep on sinning. In sin and misery, I live out my existence. And this is, uh, as uh, most people uh, believe, uh, and this is exactly how many in John's time were preaching the, how the gospel works as well. And my friends, what is that? That's the big lie. Do you hear the lie in that? You can keep your own authority over yourself. You see? That's the big lie. That's the propaganda. That's the false prophets. But the gospel is that God became 
what we are so that we might become what he is. And this requires new birth. Those who God regenerates, new birth, cannot actively continue to sin. It doesn't say won't sin. It says cannot actively continue in sin. That through trials, through trials, through sufferings, through testing and temptation, we, like Christ, become truly human before God. Why do you think Jesus said, after he talked about the Son of Man must suffer these things and all that, why did he then turn and say, if you come after me, you must pick up your cross, suffer these sufferings and, and testings? We become what he is through these trials and testings. You see, as, as we are... As we who are believers through testing trials and sufferings become conformed more and more into the image of Christ, the works of the devil are being destroyed in our own lives more and more. We are active participants in this war, this enmity, which, uh, in which the works of the devil are destroyed. Now, if you, read, if you read on to uh, 1 John 5, 4, just a little ahead in the letter, John is going to say something pretty remarkable. He says that whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So our faith is what overcomes the world, which is the victory, you see, our faith. Now, faith is believing. The word faith means believing. And, and what is believed is the truth of the gospel. Not the lie, but the gospel. You see, believing the gospel, the, gos uh, the truth, the gospel, is what overcomes the lie. The gospel overcomes the lie. Now, uh, I am not good with Russian names, but I'm going to drop one on you. His name is uh, Solzhenitsyn. You ever heard of Solzhenitsyn? I think you have to be older. He was a man that, that grew uh, up in, in, in communist Russia during the Cold War. He was put into the gulag. He knows all about the big lie. He knows all about the power the devil has over us through believing the big lie. Now, Schultz and Nietzsche, who, who, by the way, uh, became Eastern Orthodox. Remember that? The Eastern Church? Russian Orthodox, actually. Um, he said this, right? How do you overcome the big lie? He says the first act of courage is just not participate in it. Refuse to participate in the big lie. Now, Jesus often says, don't do this, instead do this. Let's do one of those don't instead things. I agree, Solzhenitsyn. Here's the lie, it's being put upon you. The first act of courage and victory over that lie is just refuse to participate. I will not participate. I will not pretend. I just won't do it. Instead, participate in the truth. 
Instead, participate in the gospel. You see, if you participate in the lie, you are less than human. If you participate in the truth, the gospel, you are truly human. And those who endure to the end, Jesus said, will be saved. Amen.